Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Network. 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content. And please be sure to follow Joe and I on social media, primarily on Facebook and YouTube. You can find us at the Frontline with Joe and Joe or and or Frontline TV. Like, subscribe, share, do all that fun stuff. Hit that little bell for notifications. This way you, you get to see everything we have going on. And today we are very pleased and honored to be joined by Dan Leroy. And we're going to be discussing his new book, which came out yesterday, as a matter of fact, um, Liberty's Lions, the Catholic Revolutionaries Who Established America. And just to give Dan uh, a quick introduction to our audience, Dan Leroy is an author, journalist, teacher. He's been the director of the writing and publishing department at Lincoln Park Performing Arts Charter School in Midland, Pennsylvania since 2006. His writings about music and politics have appeared in the New York Times, Rolling Stone, Newsweek, The Village Voice, Alternative Press, Esquire.com, and National Review Online. Dan Leroy, welcome to the front line with Joe and Joe. Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me be a part of this. It's a pleasure and a privilege to join you here this morning. Awesome. Dan, before we get in, just real quick, briefly, what inspired you to write the book? Um, because I think a lot of Catholics don't realize just the, the pivotal role that Catholics have played in America. What inspired you to write it? The thing that inspired me, first of all, I want to give a plug here for something that I think is, is underrated in the, the Catholic tradition. That is spending time every week in the perpetual adoration chapel Amen. i was in uh, i was doing adoration and i usually bring some stuff in to read and i was reading uh, a monthly column in magnificat uh, which i usually take in there with me and a guy named anthony esselin who is a professor a great writer he writes a monthly column called how the church has changed the world and he wrote this column uh, it was um, I think back in March of 2019, and he wrote this column about Kazimir Pulaski, uh, the great Catholic cavalryman. And he was just talking briefly, it's only a two, three page column, but he talked about Catholics in the American Revolution. He happened to mention like, hey, there were a you know, significant number of them. And that's really what gave me the, the idea. I looked around and saw like, hey, nobody has ever tried to put all of these stories under one cover before. And, so the inspiration uh, came out of that time in the Adoration Chapel. And I'm really happy to be able to say that because the fact that, that uh, our parish has this perpetual Adoration Chapel is something that I'm really grateful for, just apart from inspiring the book. It's a great way to spend an hour every week. So that's really where it came from. That's fantastic. It is. Joe's always talking about that's a 
constant, constant uh, thing that we remind our, our, our audience of all the time is the need for adoration. Joe Resinello in particular, because I, I have sometimes with my schedule and I know how important it is, but I know when you go at least once, a, once week, a week, once a week, so important. Glad you mentioned that. So let's, let's get into it. Let's get into the topic at hand. Let's just start with a prayer, Dan, because we all Absolutely. need prayers. God knows I need them. <laughs> In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Remember, O oh, most gracious Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly into you, a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we come, before you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother, the Word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency, hear and answer us. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. So, Dan, let's get right into it. Tell us a little bit about the endless suffering of Catholics living in early America. I don't think a lot of people know about that. I, I don't think so. And, and I should say, first of all, that suffering in this case is, is probably a relative term. If you compare it with, let's say, the suffering of Catholics uh, at various periods in Great Britain, you could say, well, you know, American Catholics, colonial Catholics didn't have it quite as bad. But what they did have for sure is no matter what they achieved, no matter how much money they earned, and some of these guys were big money earners, they were second class citizens all the way. Uh, whatever they had going for them in other spheres of life, they could not participate fully in the colonial experience. They couldn't vote in a lot of cases. They couldn't hold office. They could not celebrate mass publicly. Uh, and I gotta say, like having written this book uh, in large part during the pandemic, a lot of what happened there makes you appreciate some of these sufferings. When the doors of the church are closed, when you cannot go to mass, when you are kind of undergoing some of these hardships that colonial Catholics underwent as part of their daily life, it, I hope, makes you appreciate, I, I think it did for me, appreciate, you know, what you have and, and how precious it, it is and how important it is to hold on to that. So the sufferings also varied by colony. Uh, in some cases, uh, in Maryland, in Pennsylvania, there were periods where there was toleration, kind of a don't ask, don't tell kind of thing. If you want to open this Jesuit school, uh, okay, just don't make too much noise and make us come in, have to shut you down. In other places in New Jersey and New York, I'm sorry to say. Doesn't shock me. Yeah. No, much more inhospitable to, to Catholics. Yeah, that, that, that goes on to this day, but go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so uh, again, suffering is... If you compare it to the British Catholics, perhaps you could say that colonial Catholics had it slightly easier. You could also say that in certain areas, uh, it was a little bit easier to get along than others. But by and large, the one thing that, that all of these colonial Catholics have in common is, again, they're not full citizens. They do not take full part uh, in this colonial experience because they're Catholics. And a big part of that, and it may come up later in this conversation, and both of you guys know it, is another thing that kind of continues to this day, the question of loyalty. You guys cannot be British citizens. You cannot be colonial citizens uh, because we think you owe allegiance to Rome first and, and the government here second. And that's why you see things like the loyalty oaths that people had to take denying transubstantiation because uh, 
people were going to try to settle this loyalty question by forcing people to say something that they clearly, I think, clearly in most cases did did not believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that question of who do you owe fealty to? Do you owe it to Rome? Do you owe it to the Pope? Or do you owe it to the country you live in? That was a huge question then. And in some cases, again, it, it's a question that has carried right on to the present day. You know, what's interesting is the people who came, the original um, colonists, they left because they were persecuted. And here they are persecuting Catholics. It, it's almost like it's, it's, the, it's the like human story. You know, it's Animal Farm, you know, like it it just continues on and it continues on. You know, you would think that they would have been sensitive to that, but they weren't. Well, you can look at it. uh, History is full of those kinds of ironies. You can look at uh, a founder like Alexander Hamilton saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, but only just, doesn't it make your blood run cold to think of these masses of immigrants who are gonna overrun uh, the colonies and they're going to be the Pope's army. It's a, you know, that's coming from Alexander Hamlin who was himself an immigrant. That's just a little bit rich Mm -hmm. there maybe, but it does illustrate another window into this thing that you're talking about, which is, you know, the human condition produces these ironies, I, I think, just uh, as a matter of course. And and those examples are a couple of pretty good ones that, that are part of this book. Yeah, no, I, I agree. You're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello, and we are having what is going to be and is so far a great conversation with Dan Leroy about his new book, Liberties, Lions, The Catholic Revolutionaries Who Established America. One one thing I would respond as far as the loyalty is concern, concerned, and, and this is not just a, a, a catchy phrase, this is the truth. We are loyal to the truth. That's who we're loyal to. And I would make an argument to people is that if if people would embrace, let's say, the fullness of the truth in the Catholic Church and really apply it in America, much of which is already applied. When you look, let's say, for argument, take it the principle of subsidiarity. America calls that federalism. But the church taught subsidiarity for a long time. It's, it's, It's a lot of the times, I guess what I'm trying to say, Dan, is it's a misconception of what the church teaches. I'm loyal to the truth. I adhere to the moral law to the best of my ability, okay? And that's really what it comes down to. It's not a matter of I'm going to serve the Pope or, or serve, you know, let's say serve the American government. Um, the, 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 what would you call it? The dichotomy, I, I think, is not, I don't think it's valid. You could, you've always, we've always said on the show that the United States Constitution and the Catechism of the Catholic Church are not mutually exclusive documents as far as we're concerned. There's a great conversation that's going on in the church right now about this very dichotomy that you're talking about. And, and, you know, you could do a whole show, probably several shows just on this question about uh, was the founding kind of flawed from the outset? Did, Did Catholics in particular have to make too many compromises in adopting this liberalism that, uh, you know, we're seeing kind of the outer edges of today or, is the founding something that's actually in a lot of ways intellectually consistent with the Catholic tradition? Are these two things that can be reconciled? And there are people on very smart people, much smarter people than me on both sides of this question, arguing it. Uh, I, I like to think, look, there's gotta be a way in the middle. There's gotta be a way that, that we can find some common ground between 
these two approaches because if nothing else, you know, the old idea about a house divided. Uh, and, and at this point, and I'm sure we'll talk about it uh, again before this conversation's over, this is a point in, in the Catholic Church in particular where to, to be a house divided is particularly dangerous. Mm. And we're seeing examples of this on a on a daily basis. And you know, that's it's too big a question to get into fully here. Uh, it's probably too big a question for me to ever get into fully based on my intellectual capabilities. But it, it's a it's I guess the short version of this is if somebody would say, hey okay, you wrote a book and it's about revolutionary Catholics and that's great, but I don't really care that much about history and all these people are dead and what does this have to do with me anyway? It has everything to do with you. It's the same kind of conversation that we're having today, right now about some of these very same topics. These things don't go away. They go underground for a while, but they don't go away. They don't. Well, what's funny, I, as you talk about that, I think about uh, the Israelites, Old Testament. They didn't have a king. They had judges. God was their king. I bring that up because ultimately, if we're good Catholics, we're, it's a higher law to, to adhere to the laws of God. We'll, of course, be good Americans. And it goes along with what the original Catholics who settled this country they of course they're going to be good americans it it they're not mutually exclusive if you're a good catholic you're a good american in fact it's harder <laughs> to be a good catholic than to just go along with the laws of the land um and i think that's why to be honest with you many great catholics were crucial to the american founding yet historians didn't speak of them or even downgraded them why do you think they downgrade do you think there was a bias towards them I mean, I think there's definitely some bias historically, but I also think uh, it's a chicken and the egg kind of thing. Uh, and I don't want to, you know, make myself or this book certainly sound more important than than what they are. I hope it's some little drop in the ocean. But, you know, did they downgrade them because there is no attempt to try to say, hey, look, all of these stories, one of which you can find in this biography here, one of which you can find there, there's kind of scattered piecemeal. Nobody said, hey, if you actually put all this stuff together, it does make a pretty compelling case that these guys were significant. So is it because... Uh, is it because of bias? Is it because of neglect? Is it just because nobody did it? I, I don't know, but I, I like to think that having it all under one set of covers does make that idea a little bit more apprehendable to people that uh, if, <laughs> if anybody can generate a full length book on this topic, somebody might say, wow, like, I guess there is something to this after all. But some of it's a numbers game too. And this is the part that I think uh, is poorly understood. One of the reasons I'm sure that these people were downgraded is because if you just look at the raw numbers, they tell you that something like 24 to 30,000 colonists were Catholics. And we believe based on the evidence, although we can't say with certainty, but we believe that most of them were patriots. But you're talking about a number far less than 2% of the colonial population. So it's normal to say, well, okay, it's like one and a half percent. Like, I don't care who they were. Like, what, how important could that really be? 
in the scheme of things. But that misses the fact that out of that very small percentage, you have people who aren't just patriots, they're leaders. They're leaders militarily, they're leaders economically, they're leaders intellectually, and they're leaders, of course, spiritually. So that's the tagline, you know, they didn't just participate, they led it. But then the numbers game cuts both ways. If you start including all of the foreign Catholics who, let's face it, uh, if they don't get involved, we're not having this conversation right now. We're talking about French soldiers, German soldiers, Polish soldiers, Spanish soldiers. You start looking at the numbers that way, there are some estimates that say that up to 70% of the soldiers who fought on the Patriot side were Catholic. So uh, the, the numbers game, if you look at it in raw numbers from the colonial Catholic side, okay, it's maybe not very impressive, but within that number, there's a pretty impressive amount of people. But then when you bring in the foreign Catholics, and again, uh, Alexander Hamilton himself, uh, who was nothing if, if not honest, you know, once we get to 1780, 1781, and things are looking bad, he says, you know what, the French and the Spanish are going to have to save us. And guess what, they did. And they were Catholic. <laughs> they absolutely were. So George Washington probably referred to them as papists, <laughs> because that's how I guess all Catholics at that time were referred to. But he admired their willingness to do what they were doing, which was to lay down their lives uh, in the founding of this country. Talk a little bit about George Washington's view of, of these early Catholics, early American Catholics. George Washington is kind of unique among the founders uh, because uh not only does he kind of have this view, as you say, that he admired uh, the sacrifices that Catholics made, but he also, he didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk. Uh, for a long time, there were celebrations in Boston and in other colonial cities of Pope's Night, which is referring to the gunpowder plot. And Pope's Night celebrations are essentially a, an anti-Catholic, drunken bash. We burn the Pope in effigy, uh, we recite these anti-Catholic limericks and we have a good old time. Uh, that was a well-entrenched tradition. When George Washington takes over the Continental Army, he says, nope, I'm not going to do this anymore because this is completely counterproductive. We expect these people to be part of our cause. And yet we're going to do this thing where we insult and degrade them uh, annually. Nope. Uh, and Catholics undoubtedly had to respect a guy who, again, didn't just talk about it. He came in and put the kibosh on it. And it's one of the reasons why in Liberty's Lions we, we make the case, you know, that Washington is a guy who, who has long been admired by Catholics. Uh, some of it is, is that example, the example of him taking action and not just talking. Some of it is when he talked, the stuff that he said. Uh, he... George Washington is a guy like, you know, it's hard to say George Washington is actually underrated. That seems like a, kind of a crazy thing to say. And yet I think he really is. If not militarily, then maybe intellectually. George Washington was a lot smarter than most people realize. He wasn't just this military hero, although he was that. To go back to the thing that we were talking about just a few minutes ago, the, the kind of intellectual underpinnings uh, of uh, the, you know, the American law, American tradition. George Washington had a very common sense view of this that aligns perfectly 
with the Catholic view of things. To be a Catholic, as you guys were saying, is to be a good American. George Washington saw that clearly. He saw that uh, the law can and should encourage moral behavior, that government does have a vested interest in making sure that its citizens are moral. Now, okay, what's moral that, you know, there we, in some cases, can go into the weeds, but by and large, we have, I think, a pretty common sense understanding of what it means to be moral. I think George Washington had that common sense understanding. And if you look at, this is a great book that's cited in that chapter in Washington by a, a professor at Notre Dame, Dr. Vincent Munoz. And he looks at what Washington and Jefferson and Madison uh, had to say about the law. And he really makes the case, I think, that like out of all of these interpretations of things, Washington's is the view that aligns most closely and makes the most sense with people who are trying to live a Catholic life. Uh, the other views, the Jeffersonian view, the Madisonian view, are the views that have kind of led us to the place where we are right now in the culture, where we're fighting this rear guard action to try to preserve what we can uh, of tradition. Washington saw it pretty clearly. I think if you look at those guys, you would not necessarily say of the three that Washington was the smartest, but I kind of think he was. <laughs> so you're listening to the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Priscillo, Joe Rasanello, and we're having a great conversation with Dan Leroy talking about his new book, Liberties Lions, the Catholic Revolutionaries Who Established America. And just to put a finer point on it, Dan, remember even John Adams said, this republic's not going to work in the absence of a moral people. Absolutely. So, sounds pretty Catholic to me, because that's, that's what the Catholic Church would say. You can live free within a moral context. You go outside of those limits. You're asking for trouble. That's what we're seeing. But let me hand it over to Joe. Well, you know, obviously we're talking about the impact of Catholics on this founding. Uh, um, where basically would the revolution have been without these Catholics, um, in your view? Well, again, you can play a numbers game. And if you're just talking about colonial Catholics, it's easy to discount them. But where would the revolution have been without a guy like Charles Carroll of Carrollton? who saw 10 years before everybody else that revolution was not only necessary, but possible for the colonies to win. Where would the colonies, where would the colonists have been without financiers like Thomas Fitzsimmons or a guy in the West like Oliver Pollock who were Catholics who contributed substantial amounts of their own money and money that they raised to the patriot cause where would it have been without a guy like commodore john barry who a lot of people believe should be called the founder of the american navy uh you know right up until the end it's still in doubt uh and if you look at it and assume as i think is right to assume that this was not a done deal it's not a foregone conclusion as late as 1781 a lot of really smart people alexander hamilton's one of them are saying i don't know if we're gonna make it we're not gonna make it if we don't get the french and the spanish to help us uh if you look at it that way i think the question kind of answers itself it would have been nowhere it would have been impossible for the revolution to have been a success without the contributions militarily, intellectually, financially, and spiritually, without these guys, it's nowhere. 
-hmm. You know, it's funny. Um, this is something I learned recently. The first diocese on North America began in Quebec. I can't recall the gentleman's name. He's a saint. He's enshrined in the cathedral in Quebec City. But it reached from Quebec all the way down to, I believe, Miami. So the Catholics were here before yeah. the colonists. I mean, a lot of I did not know that actually. You we know, like you know, you're, you're that a little bit. It's a rather large diocese. I mean, I mean that's yeah. pretty big. Well, we don't talk about, I mean, this is like an obscure part of an already obscure subject. But one of the things we don't talk about it are Catholics in the West. And that's because when we get taught about the revolution, we spend all our time in the Northeast with a detour into Yorktown because obviously like that's where things kind of wrap up. But that ignores all the stuff that happens in and around Spanish Louisiana, in Florida, where there were substantial amounts of Catholics and substantial amounts of Catholics who were supportive of the revolutionary cause. And if it's not for what happens in the West, for example, a guy like Pierre Gabault, who helps George Rogers Clark capture this string of forts along the Western frontier and captures them peacefully, captures them just because people know this priest and they love him. And they say, look, if Father Gabault says that, that the colonists are good people, then okay, that's good enough for us. And they capture these forts without really any bloodshed at all. Without that string of victories in the West, what happens in the East isn't possible. Without uh, Bernardo Galvez, without what happens in Florida, without his successful uh, invasion, we don't get to Yorktown. It doesn't happen because all these victories that happen in the West that have substantial amounts of, of Catholic participation, these are wins that free things up uh, for the patriots in the East in the battles that we're much more familiar with. But those things don't happen without the contributions of Catholics all along that very large Western frontier that you're talking about. Now, I'm glad you're saying that. I'm glad you wrote the book because this is something that uh, this is something that we need to know. We all Americans need to know the history of America. OK, but in particular, Catholics need to know their own history in America. So your book, Liberty's Lions, the Catholic Revolutionaries Who Established America, um, is very important. We encourage you. We're going to say it again, Dan, but just let our audience know now where they could pick up your book. Where, where can people find it? Absolutely. You can get it from the publisher at sophiainstitute.com. You can, of course, get it from Amazon. And if you want an inscribed copy, you can go to my website, danleroy, that's L-E-R-O-Y.com. And I'll be glad to sign one for you and ship it right out. And for everybody out there who's listening to us on the Veritas Catholic Network, Sophia Institute Press is a phenomenal resource for Roman Catholics, for all people who, who, who want to know a thing or two about a thing or two. All right, but Sophia Institute Press is awesome, and you should all check it out, and particularly go and buy Dan Leroy's book. So, Dan, we have about um, we have about three minutes before the break, two and a half, three minutes before the break. Um, so, Joe, did you want to get into... Um, yeah, what other founders? You talked about, we, we, we mentioned uh, Adams briefly, but what did Franklin or, or say, like... Uh, I don't know, maybe Thomas Jefferson have to say about the Catholicism in general, just briefly before the break. I think a lot of these guys, the best way I could describe it is that Franklin was kind of second to Washington in that he kept a lot of this stuff to himself. And John Adams said, you know, John Adams was very jealous of the fact that everybody loved Franklin. And he said, 
I'm paraphrasing like, hey, the Catholics think it's Franklin's a Catholic and the Quakers think he's a Quaker. And that's John Adams, a guy who was honest, I think, to a fault and therefore didn't help himself politically. So Franklin kind of stayed out of it. Adams, uh, Samuel Adams, Alexander Hamilton, we mentioned John Jay. These are guys who are pretty much on record uh, with fairly anti-Catholic views. Jefferson is sort of a category unto himself. You know, this is a guy who makes his own Bible up uh, by cutting and pasting the parts that he likes. And, and Sounds he, like today. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he was definitely influential in that sense. But by and large, most of the founders are either on record as being anti-Catholic or they don't have much use for it. That's what makes George Washington so unusual among all of them. Excellent. So uh, we're going to start. Let's start a question because we're not going to have time and then we'll get to it on the other side. Um, talk about the let's say let's say when you talk about all this anti-Catholicism, I don't know that many of these guys would have too many bad things to say about the Marquis de Lafayette. Um, so let's uh, let's start talking about him for about 30 seconds and then uh, we'll go into the break and we'll pick it up on the other side. He's an important, important figure. He is. But one of the reasons that they wouldn't have too much bad to say about the Marquis is that he himself, he'd be the first person to admit it. He was a Catholic, but only nominally. He wasn't a great Catholic. He wasn't a great Christian. He was a child of the Enlightenment, the way a lot of these founders were. He was speaking their language and they his. So it's not really the Marquis that, that we can talk about as far as Catholicism. It's his wife. His wife is the one who holds that family together and, and is really a significant figure. We're going to talk about the Marquis' wife when we come back from the break. You're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Racinello, and we are having a great conversation about Catholic revolutionaries who established America, Liberty's Lions. That's Dan Leroy's new book. So we're going to pick this up on the other side of the break. You're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. We'll be back in a few minutes. Hey, you know about our Veritas shows, right? All five? It starts every Sunday at 5 p.m. with The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Their guests include the biggest names in the Catholic world, and Joe and Joe talk to them from the perspective of the everyday Catholic. Every Wednesday at noon, you can catch Let Me Be Frank. This is your chance to hear Bishop Frank Caggiano talk about spirituality, church news, and fun stories from his Brooklyn childhood and his life. Thursday nights at 8 o'clock. That's when you can hear It's Not That Late with Liv Harrison. It's a late night show on Catholic Radio, and Liv mixes faith with humor, games, and dynamic interviews. There's a double dose of shows on Friday. First, at noon, it's Restless. It's four millennials talking about, well, life as millennials in today's crazy world. Yes, it's possible to be young and Catholic. Then, at 12.30 on Fridays, you can hear the focus on Veritas, where Peter Sonsky puts the focus on good works and the good people doing those works. Those are the five Veritas shows, and there's more on the way. Stay up to date at VeritasCatholic.com or on the mobile app. Welcome back, everyone, to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello, and we are in the breach, having a great conversation with Dan Leroy, 
his new book, Liberties, Lions, The Catholic Revolutionaries Who Established America. Please make sure to visit Sophia Institute Press and buy this book so you can get a pretty thorough history of the experience of Roman Catholics in America. So we ended the last segment talking about, or we introduced a character, Marquis de Lafayette, okay, who Dan has said wasn't the, wasn't the greatest Catholic. We don't know if he was sitting in perpetual adoration or not, but you did bring up, Dan, his wife, Mrs. Marquis de Lafayette. Yeah. Let's talk about her and her importance. Well, as it says in the book, uh, she is someone who never came to America, never set foot on American soil. So at first glance, you say like, hey, why, why are we talking about her? Like what importance did she have to the Patriot cause? But I make the argument that she had at least a couple of significant contributions. One is the way I look at her in this book is she kind of stands in for all the women and there are a lot of them who we don't know their stories. We know that they had to put up with a lot. They had to put up with their husbands being gone for sometimes years at a time. They were essentially single parents raising kids uh, on their own. Uh, they were out of touch with their husbands. They didn't know whether they were alive or dead. And they had a rough time and we just don't know. History doesn't tell us a lot of their stories. It does tell us, uh, the story of Adrian de Lafayette. And it's an incredible story. This is a woman who, uh, you know, apart from the fact that she kind of turned a blind eye to the Marquis' indiscretions uh, and, and allowed him to get on with his business. And he, as everybody knows, I think played a very, very important part in the, in the colonial victory in the Revolutionary War. But the real interesting story kind of happens afterward in the second revolution, the French revolution, which is not very much like the American revolution at all. And this is a woman who, uh, among other things, was on death row uh, during the French revolution, just missed being executed. Her mother and her grandmother weren't so lucky, but she just missed being executed. And immediately almost on uh, getting her reprieve, she packs up their two daughters and she goes to Olmutz where the Marquis de Lafayette is imprisoned. And he's in prison because a lot of the European leaders don't like this guy because they view him as the guy who instigated all this stuff, who got uh, the French monarch executed. And so he's in prison and as far as they're concerned, he can rot there. But the Marquis's wife takes her two daughters. She shows up at the prison at Olmutz and says, hey guys, look, our family's been separated long enough we are going to be reunited, lock us up. And they do. And she spends two years in prison with her husband and their two daughters there under pretty deplorable conditions. But she does it because she loves the guy. And had she not done that, who knows whether he would actually have been released because it's all the attention that she brings. And she gets international attention for what she does for allowing herself and her daughters to be locked up with her husband. That's what eventually gets the pressure going to get all of them released. And then I think even, you know, that's an incredible story. We can rightly ask like, okay, how many people would be willing to do this for their husband or the spouse or whomever? But the really incredible thing is that she fights a battle for her husband's soul and that battle goes on until the day of her death. And he admits, look, not a great Catholic, not a great Christian, maybe not even a believing Christian at all. But she keeps at him. 
And she's a little bit like St. Monica in that way, trying to persuade St. Augustine, look, you, I'm just going to keep after you and one day you're going to come around. And what we know from the Marquis letters is that we don't know whether he did it. That's something maybe we find out in the next world. But what we do know is that he took it seriously. He really loved his wife. She told him, look, you should read these books. They're all great conversion stories. And we know that he got these books and that he did it. And we know that as their marriage progressed, he really grew to love and respect his wife in a way that he hadn't when they were very young. And they were married very, very young, as a lot of people were in those days. But he really grew to, to have an admiration for her. And it's nice to think that, that all of that pleading that she did on behalf of his immortal soul eventually paid off. But like it says in, in the book, if there's a saint anywhere in this book, that's where it is. It's her. Awesome. And, and real quick, uh, briefly, because we have a few more questions, we'd love to try to get to them. Um, just one or two of the major contributions of the Marquis de Lafayette in the American Revolution. Well, he certainly, uh, from the, the time that he comes over, he, you know, he plays a significant role in several major battles, but probably his single biggest contribution, well, I'll say two things. One of them is a big one that I think a lot of people know about. One I don't think anybody knows about. The one that everybody knows about is he goes and he kind of dogs Cornwallis uh, throughout 1781. And he kind of chases him around and kind of sets up the eventual victory at Yorktown. And it's Lafayette who, who really sets the stage for the battle that everybody knows that happens that fall. The world turned upside down. But here's the thing I think a lot of people don't know about Lafayette that speaks to his character. Lafayette from an early age uh, you know, was kind of haunted by the specter of his father. His father was a military hero who was killed in battle. And Lafayette his whole life wanted to avenge his father. And one of the things that Lafayette does in that spring of 1781, he's also on the track of Benedict Arnold, who's the most hated man in America. Whoever tracks down Benedict Arnold, brings him in dead or alive, is going to become immortal. And Lafayette has an opportunity. At one point, Benedict Arnold is walking with a British general on the beach, and Lafayette has an opportunity to take him out to order his execution and to order the execution of this guy that he's walking with. And it just so happens that the guy that Benedict Arnold is walking with is the soldier that Lafayette believes is the guy who killed his father. This is a guy who could become, again, uh, even more of a legend than he already was, and he could avenge his father all in one fell swoop, and he doesn't do it. He will not because he believes it's dishonorable to shoot these guys down unaware. And I think that says something, whatever kind of Catholic, whatever kind of Christian he was, I do think it says something about his character that faced with this temptation, he refused. That's an amazing story, actually. I really think so. I mean, like you said, we didn't know about it. We didn't know about it. So you're at the front line with Joe and Joe. Dan Leroy is discussing his new book, Liberty's Lions, the Catholic Revolutionaries Who Established America. You mentioned uh, one carol on the other side of the break, uh, but there were two Catholic carols. Uh, One was a cleric and the other one was a signer of the Constitution. Let's talk about them. Well, uh, Father John Carroll is the cleric there. He becomes the first bishop, first Catholic bishop of the United States, and later the first archbishop. And John Carroll plays a, a 
small but really, really important role in the revolution. And that role kind of pays off later for the Catholic Church in America. He goes on this mission to uh, Canada in 1776, and he goes with his cousin, Charles Carroll of Carrollton, and he goes with Benjamin Franklin. And their job is to convince the French Canadians to join the Patriot cause or at least sit this out, like at least don't get in our way. And they go to Canada and the mission is a failure. Uh, the Canadians think that they're gonna bring money to repay all the debts that Americans have run up up there and they have no money. And the bishop uh, in Quebec uh, is loyal to the British and sees these guys understandably as enemies. And he gives them the cold shoulder almost from the beginning. So this mission is a big washout. But two things happen. One is that even though on the face of it, it seems like it's unsuccessful, what eventually happens is that these guys do win over some hearts and minds. And they do eventually convince these folks to at least stay neutral. And that's a small but significant uh, victory for the Patriots. But the other thing that happens is that as they're coming back kind of in defeat, uh, John Carroll, Father John Carroll strikes up this friendship with Benjamin Franklin, who's old, he has gout, he's wishing he would have never taken this trip because he kind of knew from the beginning that it probably wasn't gonna work and now he's discouraged and they have to take this long carriage ride back to Philadelphia and he's really suffering. And John Carroll takes care of him. And Benjamin Franklin never forgets these very simple kindnesses that Father John Carroll performs and later, that is the thing that plays a big role in Father John Carroll becoming the first Catholic bishop of the United States because Franklin is the guy who is kind of the intermediary who speaks up on Father John Carroll's behalf in these negotiations that happened between the colonial government and the Vatican after the Revolutionary War. So it's, it's a great example of this thing we say all the time, like, you, you know, you win hearts and minds, one heart and one mind at a time. And when you do that, it's impossible to imagine where that ends up down the line. In yeah. this case, it ended up with him becoming uh, this seminal figure in, in Catholic history. That is a great story. And I, I just want to highlight the fact that, like, clearly both men are intelligent. And, you know, yet it was the kindness that opened his ears to the Catholic, you know, belief system. And basically, you know, while he didn't convert, he then helped influence because Absolutely. of that. I, I think that's such an important point because, like, I think many times we as Catholics, you know, that is the way to open people up to the truth because people sometimes they just close their ears to it. Even if it's perfectly said, it's linear, it's logical, it's the truth. But it was this man's kindness that opened his mind, and he was a very sharp man, to the truth. And then it influenced America. We're lazy. We want it all to happen globally all the time. It doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. One person, one interaction at a time. That's slow, it's frustrating, but it's also the only way this stuff happens. So speaking of globally, let's talk about Poland and the yeah. Polish. So the Polish had some, uh, had some patriots in the American, uh, the American Revolution. Talk about them, Dan Leroy. Uh, there are a couple of them that are mentioned here in particular. Kazimierz Pulaski is the guy who's thought of as the father of the American cavalry. Incredibly brave guy, incredibly 
talented horseman. Uh, he is the guy who saves Washington at the Battle of Brandywine. And had he not come in and kind of stalled for time with his little ragtag band of cavalry, it's very possible Washington gets captured there and the revolution's over in the fall of 1777. But Pulaski and his, again, kind of assembled on the spot group of cavalrymen give just enough cover for Washington to escape. Uh, so that's one of the many heroic uh, actions performed by Pulaski. The other guy who I would say is an even more interesting figure in a lot of ways is Tadeusz Kosciuszko, who is uh, an engineer he is the guy who designs West Point uh, and really gives Washington this kind of impregnable fort along the Hudson that he's been wanting for a long time. Uh, he plays a significant role in the South, designing some boats that allow the Patriot Army to keep the British Army on the run, keep one step ahead of them. And as much as anything else, Kosciuszko is also a guy who, and we got to admit, like a lot of these guys have complicated backstories. Some of these guys are slave owners and some of these guys have uh, beliefs that don't necessarily align with our beliefs today. Kosciuszko is a guy who always, always intervenes on behalf of the enslaved. In fact, the thing that he wanted to do that was never realized, he's great friends with Jefferson. And he wants Jefferson to free all his slaves because he says, look, you're the guy who wrote these beautiful words. How can you not live up to this? How can you have slaves and, and be the author uh, of these stirring and, and you know, deeply moral words? So he says, look, I want you to take all the money that I earned in a revolution. And I want you to free as many of your slaves as possible. Jefferson doesn't do it. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons why he didn't do it, but you know, this is the guy who said, who wrote very famously, he was awakened by the fire bell in the night of slavery. But in this case, it, 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 he slept through it. Uh, he, he never lived up to this dream. That was really the only thing Kosciuszko wanted. And these guys were close. Jefferson wanted Kosciuszko to come live with him in America. He wanted them to be buried side by side. And yet when it came down to it, when he had a chance to fulfill this pledge that Kosciuszko kind of demanded of him, he, he didn't come through. You know, it's funny. You mentioned Pulaski. There's a bridge in Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, no. I was just, I was just thinking of this. You Absolutely. know, it's like names you hear throughout your life. So I'm thinking as you're talking, I'm thinking it's like Pulaski Skyway. All right. Yep. And then uh, for a time I lived in New York and I would always go over the Kosciuszko Bridge from Brooklyn to Queens. It's like, at least they have bridges named after them. They do. These guys have a ton of stuff named after them. And, and it's, that's one of the things I, I hope will happen is, I think it's so cool if you see this thing that you've thought of and you don't know where the name comes from and then you're like, oh, okay, it's, it's because of this guy. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's a, a, a nice little piece of history in your everyday life, uh, I hope. Yeah, yeah. So you're at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Racinello. Great, great, great conversation in the breach with Dan Leroy. Liberties Lions is his new book, The Catholic Revolutionaries Who Established America. Dan, you mentioned a Jesuit in your book. Tell us a little bit about him. Well, actually, uh, if you count Father John Carroll, there are three pretty significant ones. But there are two guys who are essentially Jesuit 
circuit riders. They travel all around. One's in the east. That's Father Ferdinand Farmer, who travels right there. He was uh, traveling right up through Jersey, uh, you know, crossing the crossing the river, coming into Jersey and, and making his rounds. And he, he traveled all through the Northeast. And then on the Western frontier, we have a guy, I think that we mentioned a little bit earlier, Pierre Gabalt, who uh, is also a, a traveler all through that very vast uh, Western frontier. But both of these guys, uh, I think, speak to something uh, that, that it's good for us to be reminded of today. Catholics in those days, if they were lucky, they knew somebody who had a chapel in their home and they could go worship there. Unless you lived in Philadelphia, you weren't going to get to go to mass and church because there wasn't anywhere else in the British Empire where you could do that. But a lot of people were dependent on Jesuit circuit riders. And Father Carroll was one too. But Father Farmer, Father Gabalt, these are guys who come around, you maybe see them once a year twice maybe if you're really lucky and that's the only time that you get to have mass said and it's really a huge celebration and i think in light of you know what happened last year like we were talking about earlier churches are closed all of a sudden you don't get to go to mass you go uh via facebook uh, if you go at all uh you know these this was the everyday reality for most Catholics in the colonies. Mass was a special thing because you didn't know when or if you were going to get to participate in it. Well, and the Jesuits played a huge role. I mean, we have the North American martyrs in New York, but also uh, I believe, I, well, I, I know, I read a book about him. He's uh, a Belgian Jesuit who settled a lot of the West, um, started St. Louis University, went up through Oregon, um, and a lot of, I, I believe there's a statue. I can't, I think it's the small, or I can't recall his name, but he's a Belgian Jesuit um, that had a huge influence in, in uh, you know, the West. So, I mean, definitely their, their impact in America is huge. It, it is. And part of that impact is uh, in part because of this historical quirk, which is the order gets disbanded uh in 1773 or by 1773 it's actually kind of like a rolling thing across europe but the orders disbanded and and all of a sudden priests like father john carroll and ferdinand farmer are kind of at loose ends they they don't uh, for the moment really owe allegiance to anybody and it's that that allows them as much as anything else to become fully involved and invested in the patriot cause had it not been for the suppression of the Jesuits, Father John Carroll never comes to America, probably. He never comes back. He probably stays in Europe for the rest of his career. Uh, we don't know what would have happened to Father Farmer and Father Gabalt, but undoubtedly their lives would have been different had the order been maintained. But it's, it's this temporary suppression of the order that happens at just the right time if we can say just the right time, because it was really a huge hardship for these guys who had the rug yanked out from under them. But in uh, the Patriot perspective, it happened at just the right time, because otherwise they don't participate in the way that, that history tells us that they did. So Dan, um, to, to let our audience know, when was the first slave revolt? And what role did American Catholics play in that revolt? The first slave revolt, the first big significant one happens the better part of 50 years before 
the revolution begins. And it happens along the Stono River in South Carolina. And the participants, we don't know that all of them were, but we know that at least some of the participants were Congolese Catholics uh, who venerated Mary. And part of the chapter in Liberty's Lines that talks about this, the prologue, uh, kind of makes the case that it might have been the first time that Catholics rose up in opposition to the British in the colonies. And a lot of it, you know, we don't have written records of a lot of these things. A lot of it is conjecture, but we do know that at least, as I say, some of the slaves were Catholics, they were Congolese. Uh, at least one of them was apparently well-educated and could read and write. And they rose up and, you know, the, the revolt ultimately wasn't successful for most of these slaves. Most of them were kind of killed where they stood or hunted down. A few of them probably escaped to Spanish Florida. Uh, and, and it's, I think there's a great quote in there from, from the guy who wrote a, a wonderful book about this slave revolt, Peter Hoffer, who said like, you know, slavery ruined everything it touched. And you can look at this revolt and say, wow, like these guys were Catholics and, and probably their faith played some role in this revolt. Unfortunately, it was also incredibly brutal men, women, children killed. So it, it, it's not a, a, you know, it's a pretty complicated thing as most uh, events that involve slavery are. But I thought it was worth pointing out because it's one of these events that involves apparently Catholics that again, a lot of people, I wasn't familiar with it before I, I started writing the book. So I'm assuming that's true of a lot of people as well. You know, it's funny, uh, something that I recently read um, that the American, that the Catholic Church, basically, you know, you were, you could not have a slave 500 years before the Civil War in America. You were excommunicated if you were a Catholic. I forget what Pope said that. Many people don't know that. And then here you are talking about a Catholic who's talking to Thomas Jefferson, trying to convince him to give up his slaves. I mean, I think that's a very important uh, piece of information. You know why it's so so important? I'm glad you're mentioning that, okay? Because that's one of the things that we, we see, we, Joe and I say on the show all the time, Dan, we need to stop defending. We need to start asserting okay, and assert our Catholic faith and our Catholic history. Slavery was condemned in the 15th century by Pope Eugene. And every hundred years after that, it was condemned repeatedly, okay, under pain of mortal sin. I want everybody out there who's listening to the Veritas Catholic Network to know the Catholic Church was not late to the game, as some people like to say, on slavery. Individual Catholics might have done that. That's right. But the Catholic Church... Has, when they saw that the, um, the, uh, the indigenous people of the Canary Islands were being enslaved, okay, uh, by Catholics, the Pope, I believe it was Pope Eugene IV, okay, issued a papal bull and said, you will return them to their liberty forthwith under pain of mortal sin. I'm sorry to get so animated about that one, but I'm tired of hearing Catholics say Catholics didn't do enough about slavery. No, as Joe Racinello just said, we did it hundreds of years. The church was very clear on slavery hundreds of years before American slavery. As you say, the, the Catholics who did this were contravening the magisterium. It says it directly. And were there Catholics who did that? Yeah, absolutely. We, we know who they were, but that goes against doctrine. 
And uh, as it says in the book, it doesn't mean that they weren't great men, but it means that they were less great than they should have been because they, they are flouting what the church teaches in, in this issue. And that's Absolutely. an unfortunate thing. It's a historical tragedy in a, in a lot of ways. But yeah, I, I think a lot of people don't realize that, that the church was in early and, and has it in writing. And it just so happened a lot of people decided, yeah, there you go. There's a, a great way to tie this to our present condition. A lot of people decided, ah, you know what? I know what the church says, but I'm different. You must be watching the front line with Joe and Joe, Dan, <laughs> because that's what we say all the time. Yeah. The church is no more responsible for, for individual Catholics getting involved in slavery as the church is no more responsible for individual Catholics who support abortion. The church teaching is what's very, very clear, as you said, magisterial teaching of the church. Dan, we have about... Three minutes. You brought it up to the modern time. I know Joe has one more question. You talked about on the other segment, you talked about how people felt like the early colonists couldn't be good Americans and be good Catholics. They would be loyal uh, to the Pope as opposed to the country. Talk about when JFK became the president, because that was uh, he was obviously the first American uh, Catholic president, Joe Biden being the second um, baptized Catholic. But but people felt that way. They said, well, how could you possibly be loyal to this country? All the way up to the 1960s, there's been Catholic persecution in this country, whether directly or indirectly. Talk a little bit about that. Well, here's what I would say. I'll try to keep it brief. I think we're entering a time where this, uh, these doubts about Catholics, which have been with us since the founding, now all Christians are about to find out what these doubts look like when they're applied to just being a, a Christian believer. We are entering a time when it's not necessarily just going to be Catholics who are going to face that, it's going to be all Christians. Uh, we're about to have a lot of company in the boat very soon. We have some already. And the way around that is, uh, and we were talking about earlier, uh, we have to find, we got to think small, not big. We got to think small. We got to find small institutions. We got to find our churches. We have to find families. We have to find places that we can build up and go outward. We're not going to find a global solution to this. We're not going to get solutions from the government. Nobody is coming in to bail us out. We have to think small and build up. And we also got to accept one thing, I think, and this is a tough thing. I'm 52 years old and it hurts me to say this. I, I'm not going to be around to see what this looks like if it's successful. Probably none of us are, but that's no reason to not undertake that project. If we defend our little patch of turf, that's the only way forward. And if we're depending on somebody uh, from, you know, whether it's big government, big business, whoever, to help us out, you forget it. Not happening. I agree with you. I agree, yeah. I yeah. agree with you. I mean, we're seeing some of this persecution you talked about. We were talking about persecution 250 years ago. I mean, as Catholics, you can't even say in polite company that you believe in traditional marriage. I mean, this is a pervasive idea. Across the whole globe, you know, our Jewish brothers and sisters believe in it. Muslims believe in it. Frankly, 
everywhere you go in the world, that is the idea of marriage. You can't say that in polite company. And if you do, you're labeled a hater. Joe, Joe Arsenal, I have to leave it there. Dan, 30 seconds, final thoughts, and where can people buy the book? You can buy the book from the publisher, sophiainstitute.com. You, of course, can buy it from Amazon and other retailers, Barnes & Noble. And if you'd like an inscribed copy, visit my website, danleroy, L-E-R-O-Y.com, and I will be glad to sign one for you and ship it right out, and I'll inscribe it however you would like. Excellent. And, Dan, we really want to thank you for coming on the show. This is a fascinating conversation. We already know we're going to have you back, brother. Hey. I mean, I mean, we could, we could, you know, a couple of Italian guys, a guy like you, we'll, we'll go on for hours and hours. And this was really important because people need to know their history. So we want to thank you, Dan Leroy, very much for coming on the front line with Joe and Joe. And we want to thank you, dear brothers and sisters, for joining us at the front line on the Veritas Catholic Network, bringing the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York metropolitan area, 1350 on your AM dial. And please, for all Veritas content, be sure to download the mobile app at Veritas Catholic Network and follow Joe and I on Facebook and YouTube until they shut us down, of course. You can like, subscribe, share, hit the little bell for notifications, do all that fun stuff. And remember, until the next time, that our conversation is your conversation. And that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon. 